just all this architecture that means you do not hear, you do not see, mm-hmm. you do not make eye contact with the mother sobbing mm-hmm. two feet away from you, apart from in the milking shed. This is a story about a pregnancy that doesn't end the way it should. About what happens when your baby is born too early to survive alone. It's about the parents, the babies, and the doctors who save them. It's about what happens when your life doesn't turn out quite the way you expected, and the untold story of what happens next. I'm Francesca Siegel. Welcome to Mothership. When my premature twins were in intensive care, pretty much the only thing I could do for them was express breast milk. I had to pump as often as I would have fed the babies, which is basically all the time around the clock. So I spent hours in the hospital expressing room, which we called the milking shed. When your baby is in NICU, you are cut off from your friends, cut off from your real life. But in the milking shed, I found other women who understood. The milking shed and our milking shed WhatsApp group became our room of requirement, built for once on matriarchal terms, emotion-driven, connection-seeking, instinct-trusting a safe women's space inside the classically patriarchal structure of a hospital. When Mothership came out, my friends who appear in it got loads of fan mail, quite rightly I say. And so, four years on, by popular demand, I'm here with my crew, Kamisha. I quite enjoyed the fact that we could just hide. Vicky, who appears in the book as Sophie. But there was also nothing at all that I could do. And she said now is really an exercise in not going mad. And Catherine who's not in the book only because we met properly after our babies were discharged. It goes back to the feeling of like whether you, how do you feel like a mother? And it's things like that that can make you feel like a mother. And I can't emphasise this enough. We want it to be your crew too. We were incredibly lucky to find one another, but it doesn't always happen like that. Because I also got a lot of messages from women feeling lonely and isolated on their wards. And so the four of us got together to talk about the time our babies were side by side in incubators and to tell anyone who needs to hear it that although we all had hard starts to motherhood, between the four of us we now have five beautiful, bonny, cheeky four-year-olds and most importantly, that your tribe is out there and we get it. And in my final attempt to recreate the milking shed, we're all topless. No, just kidding. Welcome into the milking shed. The milking shed was a windowless cupboard. It was really a cupboard. There was just it, a rectangle yeah. room with no windows. Yeah, it had leaflets. A lot of leaflets. At the front, a number of chairs, sort of behind each other. There were two adjacent and then two behind. Sometimes there'd be extra that would pop in. Yeah, and then you would sit there facing the wall and pump for that. And you could go in that room and be the only person in there, or you could open the door and it was raucous. Yeah. 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 And you just had no idea when you opened the door what you'd find mm. in there. Or you, you could open the door and there'd be one person weeping. Yeah. Yeah, you would sometimes have to time it. And it's noisy. There back. Yeah, other people's train carriages. It's like, yeah, it's like, a, like a donkey going... <laughs> they pump. Yeah. Yeah. And then sometimes people would remove their boob and it would like make a farting noise. Oh yeah, <laughs> very loud <laughs> suction. It's like... But there's and there's splashing also. Mm. Some people people with lots of milk, the splat the yeah. splashing noise of other people's milk. 
But Kamisha, you're just saying that it was such a, what was the word you used? Like a retreat. I think it's so important to paint a picture of what it's like being on the ward in terms of all the etiquette about you don't look at anybody else's baby, you don't go anywhere mm-hmm. else's incubator. The, and mm-hmm. the, for all yeah. important medical reasons about patient confidentiality, but it's, you're very isolated on the ward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have even to, if you're two feet away from even the if people you're two from whom you're isolated. Yeah. Yeah. And that you have to leave the room if a doctor wants to discuss another baby, or they put these headphones that blast mm-hmm. some local radio station on in your <laughs> ears. So there was just all this architecture that means you do not hear, you do not see, mm-hmm. you do not make eye contact with the mother sobbing mm-hmm. two feet away from you, apart from in the milking shed. And in some ways it's like a... I don't know, I don't know what you call it, something about the scarcity of the breast pumps. Because if they had 20 million of those things, we could have all been sat by our incubator, incubator pumping yeah. all the time. But we couldn't because there weren't enough. And thank goodness mm. there weren't yeah, enough. Absolutely. absolutely. It is an enforced intimacy at a time when the last thing that was on my mind was you making making mm. human connection, yeah, making absolutely. friends. Mm. And you go in there on your own, you don't take your best friend, you don't take your mum, you don't take your husband, you have to be in there on your mm. own. And so then suddenly, and then yeah, what do you do? Like, you sit there <laughs> with, your bre- with your boobs out next to a stranger, looking at a wall, and then you say, how's your baby? <laughs> Not how's your day? Yeah. No, how's not your what's your name? Yeah. I don't know anybody's name for ages. It was, you know, Archie's mum, Ebony's mum. I think the only sense of competition or anxiety I felt in the milky shed actually was about the milk. I remember these Kamisha's sort of surreptitious... Kamisha. <laughs> yeah. These, like, vats of pure cream. I remember <laughs> <laughs> Surreptitiously, <laughs> you can't help but surreptitiously look at some like what somebody else's output is, yeah. and then there'd be somebody holding like, and you know they've got one bottle in their hand and they're still going. You think, oh bloody hell! Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. it is something about just pumping. It's a real mission. Yeah, and that's the thing. It mm. was a good escape because in the first few days, you'd obviously literally have to be like every two hours yeah. on the clock. Mm. Yeah. Okay, I have to go, and you you know you sit there for at least 20, 20 minutes, half yeah. an hour. Mm. Yeah. The timing. So in that, when you think about it, we were in the milking shed at the beginning more than we were actually buying the beds. Mm. Because we had so little that we could do for our babies, really. But mm-hmm. this was the thing that we were told over and over and over again. This is vital, and also only you can do it. Yeah, you're um, pretty much pounced on the moment you get into hospital. That's yeah. what they want from you. Yeah, yeah your like, breast you need to sleep. You need to yeah. sleep properly. Yeah. Yeah. As soon as, yeah, as soon as Ebony was born, I was literally being groped. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> I think I demanded to be shown, even when I was on recovery in the like, observation room after the C-section, I was saying, right, give me a syringe. <laughs> because it was partly about reclaiming this body that had really let me down, yeah. that had failed to grow a good placenta, or whatever. Um, and then, but my boobs could do something. My boobs seemed to be working. I was determined that they were going to work. Were they working at that stage? Because my boobs were definitely had not got with the programme. Mm. They, there was no sense from my boobs that they knew what they were meant to be doing I mean it was days and days and days and days before my milk came in and the anxiety of that and the fear mm. of that and I remember about sort of 36 hours in no it must have been earlier than that one of the nurses saying will you sign this form um, to allow the girls to have donor milk yeah I'd say oh and I just thought I mean I was so desperately grateful for the woman who had donated that mm-hmm. milk but it was just to all about kicking you when you're down I was mm. like my body is just useless can't grow the babies, can't produce the milk. But you had twins, of course. Whereas for me, with my absolutely tiny baby, my 0.3 mils. 
was like, why did you do it? Thanksgiving. I just you were the only person that actually introduced themselves to me on the ward. Well, because I didn't know I wasn't meant to. <laughs> I was I was new. I was an idiot. What did I know? I'm just too socially adept. <laughs> the rest of us all <laughs> socially know, awkward and like... totally out of tune <laughs> with what was meant to be happening. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> How lovely to meet you. And she held out her oh, hand. I wish I could to touch that. people. Germs, germs, germs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. See, that what did I know? <laughs> <laughs> you also said, do you want to come over and meet them? That's... Meet your daughters? And you, so, you, so I was like, okay. <laughs> and so I went over with you and, and I like, like, peered at my children. And then I, I, nobody had said, would you like to come and meet my child? Or, mm. And then also, I didn't know what to say because well, they I looked exactly like, like your child yeah, well, and everyone else's. Oh my god, she, that little girl looks exactly like my little boy. And then I was thinking, oh no, I'm a terrible mother because if I had a lineup, would I be able to choose my baby? <laughs> and I only thought that looking at your baby because no one else had invited me to look at their baby before. I remember. Do you remember meeting Kamisha? I well, I remember her being. I think you describe her as Queen Bee, and that's just so apt because it felt like she was just the cool girl and we all wanted to be like Kamisha so she had this like group of people and they all seemed to they always be laughing they seemed to know each other and had sort of just hover on the edges of their conversation um I do remember seeing you you were in uh the kitchen and you'd literally you just had a seat and I remember you sitting down really really happy like chirping totally yeah. like, madly in so, denial yeah <laughs> madly you were so denial. you were just you like mm-hmm. you when I I was having roast dinner my mum was actually feeding me and there was no contractions nothing and they told us the hour before we stopped the drip we're just I think you're fine don't expect anything tonight just relax you know recharge we know you haven't slept like at all um so my mum was feeding me chicken because I was just stunned <laughs> as you do and um, it never stops does it <laughs> suddenly I was like oh. it's only 18 and, <laughs> and I was just like something's happening and they were like what's the matter like what's going on and I was like I need to push and they just all looked at me like and then the midwife which uh, he turned around he was like you what I was mm-hmm. like I need to push and I've had this chicken in my mouth <laughs> And then he just like looked down and then he was like, it's coming. Mm-hmm. And then just slammed, slammed the button and, and everyone just, it was just so scary. But she literally came out like, yeah. What, like minutes later? A minute. Oh, wow. I think we were just all in shock because we weren't generally expecting her to be there two minutes, like two minutes before. Um, and they just, they whisked her over and I remember she was just, I don't know, just, it was just crazy, her head. All I, all I could see was her head with this blue hat on. And I was like, is it a boy? <laughs> <laughs> I just can't believe like how small yeah. mm-hmm. a head could possibly be. But she was perfect in every other way. Um, and then they'd whisked her away. And that was it. So, and then we had to wait. And then they kept popping back probably every half hour because I was like, what's going on now? Um, and they kept saying they couldn't get a line. Obviously, when you think back, when you think now, if you can't get a line, then you know there's nothing. They there's can, nowhere they, to go. Yeah. yeah, I didn't know that. Obviously, so I'm like, oh, what's taking them so long? Like, so we just sat and talked and 
were thinking about names really like oblivious oblivious to it all i think you kind of go in survival mode i didn't really think about the 60 percent or 70 percent of you know not surviving at that moment really to me it was she's come out alive and that's that's it at that time when we were in the hospital you know it's it's a 24 weeker you don't really know what's going to happen you don't actually know if it's going to get any further than a day or you know so i think it's quite difficult to be positive in that situation mm. when you know a baby's going to turn up at 23 and 6, 24 and 1. I remember going over to give some express milk to the night nurses and then there was this doll left on the counter. I don't know, I assume it was used for breastfeeding demonstration or something, but I just remember thinking, I really want to hug that doll, I really want to hug that doll. Mm. And then thinking, if I do, they will lock me up. <laughs> and then I thought, leave the doll. Go back to your bed. Step away from the doll. But it just like it'd been carelessly mm. thrown down, and I was like, I really need to hug a doll right now. So many of those moments, aren't there, when you just think, just be normal, just behave like you're yeah. normal, and you're not having this crazy thought, whatever it is. Because I don't know about you, I think I always had the sense that they were only provisionally my children, and I was on this kind of extended test to see if I would be allowed to take them home. Mm. You were going to be left out early for good behaviour, mm. I thought. my 20-week scan, the doctor told me that my baby had severe early onset intrauterine growth restriction. He said that the placenta wasn't giving my baby what he needed, that he was starving, and that he was drowning, because the blood work showed him that he wasn't getting enough oxygen either. He told me that, that it was not my fault. He was at pains to emphasise it was not my fault. There was nothing I could have done differently. But there was also nothing at all that I could do. And he said now is really an exercise and not going mad. Because my baby would die. He was very, sort of, no nonsense on that. That, that, that at 20 weeks that my baby was so small and that the blood work was already so less than ideal. He really thought he had very little chance. So he said, you need to go home and just wait for the kicks to stop. And when they stop, you'll come into hospital, we'll confirm there's no heartbeat, and we'll induce you. And for me, I, I don't know how people do it, but I know that they do, but the idea that I would have to go into labour and give birth to my stillborn baby was just, it was like a cliff in the mind. I just couldn't, I was, I just couldn't understand it. So his point about it was an exercise and not going mad, I really understand. He said, don't rest, it won't help. Work, continue working if you can. I just try not to go mad. So I did go home and... Um, how grieved. can you not go mad? <laughs> well, I mean, how could anybody not go mad? I suppose the thing is, um, I could still feel him kicking. Yeah. And that really was the thing that made me feel like okay, well, he's still here now. He's here. I can feel him. Mm. He's my baby. And, and every time if I didn't feel kicks, I would feel great fear. But I had to somehow believe in him. And I remember lying in the bath and sort of looking at my stomach and saying, I won't give up on you if you don't give up on me. And then I, <laughs> I suppose an act of desperate desperation or like hope, desperate hope, I just, I, I managed to find the specialist doctor 
who caught me really, who, who said, there's no 100% mortality rate. Nobody can tell you that your baby's going to die. There's no 100% mortality rate. And she was, it, she, she was honest that it was, the odds were against us. But she said, if you got to a viable weight, and you've talked about that as well, sort of 500 grams, viable weight. Before that weight, they can't do anything. Before 24 weeks, they couldn't do anything. But at 24 weeks, he was still much less than 500 grams. And again, looking at the data, looking at the graphs, 28 weeks seemed quite significant for survival rates and also not just intact survival is what they call it as well. So no or fewer long-term neurodevelopmental effects. And then it felt also we debated a lot about what, when, when it was ethical to deliver and did we want this baby more than was right? I mean, somehow I got to 28 weeks. He was just they looked like he measured over 500 grams and my wonderful doctor <laughs> said I think we should take him out now and I spoke to some neurologists about it and we just agreed so I had a cesarean to try not to stress him and he was taken out in the sack and I didn't get to see him and he was taken immediately off to be resuscitated and they struggled so I didn't see him for quite a few hours I was just wheeled away and I really remember it in the book, Francesca, you talking about it being an evisceration when you had your cesarean, they took your your girls away. And I think that's what it felt like to me. I felt like he was born alive. What a victory. But also, it was a violence to be separated from him. I really felt that I had been split like a fish and sewn up together and I was empty and I was without him. And I hadn't seen him for hours. And eventually when... A neontologist came up to the ward and he looked at me and he said, what have they told you about your baby? And I knew, oh no. His lungs are really bad. And I was being told that, okay, he's been born alive, but... And I knew that we were going to have a difficult ride. (laughs) And then, um, but when he said, what have they told you about your baby? I reeled off some statistics that I'd read. (laughs) (laughs) How much reading did you do beforehand? On well, nothing just a couple at first. Of PhDs worth. <laughs> <laughs> at first, nothing. I was just, I didn't want to, I couldn't handle any more information. Yeah. But you know, eight weeks walking around pregnant, feeling grotesque. Yeah. And after a while, I just was looking for the hope. I was just looking for any stories, anywhere, for making it <laughs> like ours. And so then you started, I started doing reading. So I had my statistics ready. And um, I said, can I see him? And he said, oh, yes. So I went down to have a look at my baby. (laughs) And what was that moment like when you first saw him? I remember that I was shaking. um, So they got me into a wheelchair and I was bleeding. I was not dressed after the cesarean. (laughs) And I was like bleeding on the chair. And I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. (laughs) God, it's so English, isn't it? The urge to apologise. Um, and then it was wheeled down and um, it sort of tried to move my wheelchair into ne- to the incubator to have a look at him and I just stopped shaking when I saw him and I can't really so he was wearing a little blue hat he was on the ventilator he had a nasal gastric tube he definitely had at least one cannula I know that they were trying to get more cannulas in him at that point so how much you see of your baby yeah. but I remember looking at his nose Thinking he looked like a troll. Like, isn't it? Okay? <laughs> <laughs> it's a very beautiful nose. <laughs> and when did you 
I mean, I'm kind of asking this of all of you, really. Like, when did you feel like a mother? I first felt like a mother when I was allowed to will her down to the coffee shop. <laughs> <laughs> they let me out and wow. we went with oxygen, the pram, and it's just pushing the pram, isn't it? It's such yeah. a child thing. <laughs> but it's like, I'm a, I'm a mum. You know, what you know of as considered to be a mother at when they're two versus when they're 13, 14 changes and it's how do you say what a mother is but I guess in the sense of feeling like I was caring for him and responsible for him I don't think for a long time I felt that way in hospital I felt like I was a a kind of a viewer of what was happening to my child like I didn't feel like I had a part to play in what was happening to him because I I was just in awe of the medical people around me, the nurses who were able to touch this tiny baby and change his nappy and put all these wires in them. And I just felt a bit like I had, he didn't need me right now as much as he needed them, which looking back now, I think, no, I had an important part to play in his survival. But at the time, I think I gave over a bit of that feeling to them because I felt like I couldn't save him on my own and I remember them saying the nurses or doctors in the unit they call you mummy <laughs> and I remember just the surprise that's really strange <laughs> because you think that the only person that has the right to call you mummy is your child <laughs> and also I wasn't sure whether I was a mother to me it was almost something that I shouldn't I shouldn't be watching my child at this he should still be in yeah in my body he should still be growing with mm. me and it's not something that I should be watching right now and I guess you just live with that day in day out I think if this podcast has one stated aim it's to connect and empower women who are touched by these issues but also at the same time it is a rallying cry for holistic family care I mean is there anything that you think that you can think of that would have altered not in terms of improving healthcare for our children because they did that amazingly <laughs> and I'm incredibly is grateful worth saying, every actually. single day yeah. they really saved my baby's life yeah. and it does make you think sometimes oh what am I doing with my career that I am not I'm not also a neonatal nurse because I do really I mean I'm just so incredibly grateful yeah. that yeah. said <laughs> that, that there are a few things that would be very easy to do that could make a dramatic um, impact on us as mothers I think so I think quite a few of us had the experience of coming in one day and seeing that our babies were dressed for the first time. And that is, you think, oh, they're dressed. That must be in progress. But then you also think, ooh. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I'm here every day, 12 hours a day. I would have really liked, I, that would have been such a treat for me. If a nurse had said, do you know what? I hope they're nearly awake where we can maybe get them some clothes. Mm. That would have been a golden day mm, and yeah. I would have like skipped myself down you know I had a couple of things at home that I had been you know kissing every night yeah. and, and and instead you, you arrive and they're there wearing something that you think oh my god that colour is just all wrong for them that's just <laughs> no well, I would have chosen I can't believe they see my child in this way <laughs> no, it's not. and then and they said to me that really really suits him that top and I thought no it does not really suit him but that's a really really simple thing it goes back to the feeling of like whether you f how do you feel like a mother and it's things like that 
that can make you feel like a mother, putting on their out, you know, their first outfit, choosing the first outfit. It might seem maybe insignificant to someone else, but it's hugely important for us who haven't been able to do that much for our children. Tell me about the mobile. <laughs> um, well, when you start getting to a certain point in, in Niku, you know, they could start getting ready for things that maybe a baby would have on the, in the normal world and things like a mobile and um, sound and sight stimulation and, it, you know, I'm all good. We can, like, start researching what the best mobile is to get him and did all these, the usual reviews and time to pick the right one and and that's such a lovely google search yeah instead of you know chance of brain bleed yeah you're looking at you know yeah it's like you're starting to think this is this is what i would have been doing you know like this is where i would have been if this hadn't happened um we picked it up and maybe left it by his bed um but then the next day i came in and a nurse had in a really i'm sure good-hearted well-meaning way had put you know put the mobile together and hung it over his cots and then I just felt quite heartbroken (laughs) it just felt like there was nothing I could do that was mine that I could felt like that another small thing but it had been taken away from me that chance to be a mother and um you know and it wasn't the nurse's fault she was just trying to help and she really was like apologetic about it and you know she was you know really like I'm really glad you told me because I you did tell her then that you were upset. Oh, yeah. I'm impressed. Yeah. I wouldn't That's have good. done. I didn't say anything about she, the And she was no, great. And, and she really was... Um, she said, no, you know, you need to tell us mm-hmm. things like this because I, need, I, I want to learn that if this is something like this might upset somebody. That's another thing I'd say. It's important to communicate things like this to the medical team. Yeah. If yeah. things like this happen that, you know, you feel maybe someone else... That won't happen to, and it's mm. it's such a, it's not a massive thing in the grand scheme of it. But I think it when you're clawing, when you're clawing for some kind of mm. something you can do that makes you feel a bit more normal. The muslins is another one, I think, because they said that oh, you know, you can buy your own muslins and you can put them next to you so they smell of your skin, and we'll use them to line his incubator as a sort of blanket. So I so they told this mm. to. Matt, my husband, and he'd gone home and he'd researched the softest cotton <laughs> garlic uh, <laughs> um, baby sheets because he didn't know what a muslin was. It sounds like something Jane Austen wears. He doesn't read the baby blogs yeah. about muslin. He doesn't know what a muslin is. So he bought this baby sheet. He thought, it's a baby, he needs a baby cot sheet. And he had washed them so carefully at home and he had put kitchen roll over the radiators because we were worried about the radiators not being clean enough mm. and dried them over this kitchen roll on the radiator. Okay. And then he'd wanted to put them next to his skin but he was worried about bacteria so he had like a good shower first. Oh. And then he wore it round his neck like a scarf and then took it into hospital. <laughs> in So when we put it, in, put it inside a pillowcase inside his backpack <laughs> to keep it clean. And he took it to hospital and we gave it to the nurse saying this is for him. And she said... He's like, gosh, she's not Muslim, you can't have this. <laughs> and I was just in the doorway looking at him and looking at his like sad shoulders. And that I was so angry with this nurse for saying, what? do you know how much he's done? And mm. you've just made him feel like a failure again mm. because we've got the wrong thing. Because we're not parents and we don't know. And how are we meant to know? And couldn't you 
really just tuck it under a bit more? Yeah. Is yeah. it that different to a muzzle? You could have worked. And when yeah. she like shook it out, one had dropped to the floor, and I was like, yeah. oh, oh no. no. So we just took them home again. But it's just like those it little things. It was a heartbreaking moment. Yeah. And I understand about the nurses. I mean, they must feel like, oh, yeah. I can't say anything. These yeah. people yeah. are so touchy. So sensitive. Yeah. But to us, yeah. it's the world. It's the yeah. only thing we can do, isn't it? And I feel like the group has been important over the longer term because of that as well. Mm. Because coming home... Coming home is really important. Yeah. Yeah. I remember mm-hmm. there's so many, like, 3am, 4am, 5am, just chat. Because mm. we were all up. I went mad a little when I came home. Definitely. I actually really went mad. I bought those Clonell hospital wipes on Amazon. Yeah. And I Clonelled pretty much my entire house. I did mm-hmm. the spindles and banisters. Mm-hmm. We toothbrush cleaned our windows. Yeah. yeah. We did a deep clean before he came home. <laughs> I think I did that now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, by far my fastidious standards than we have. <laughs> no, I have become so, like, ridiculous. My hands have aged about five years. Uh, the the hand time. washing. You're not, the hand you don't washing. think you're like that now, though. Yeah, you absolutely. Do, you all the time. You haven't out. changed in that level. No. No. Is that a direct legacy of Nikki? Absolutely. That is the institutionalised aspect of it as well. You yeah. come home and you, you're not in a clinical environment anymore and so your levels of anxiety go up again and you and gradually well for me gradually as they get stronger and you see that they're not they're not gonna they could they can get ill that they they'll be okay you hmm. you slowly start to let go of that but it, it is quite extreme i remember <laughs> i only admitted this to you recently francesca that the, the community nurse that was visited all three of us a commissioner and francesca and i for a while yeah. and tried to stage an intervention with us and said um you girls, you're so you're so afraid to go out. Go take your baby to a baby class. I was like, absolutely not, absolutely not. There's oh, other really? babies. There's other babies in those classes that might give them drugs. <laughs> and then she was like, and she said, you, Francesca, I think you need to go for a manicure with her. I was like, pardon? She's like, you need to go out. She she wanted me to like, take her out because she was also worried that you. I think she's worried. Did about she say I was actually? She said I was going mad. I think she, she thought we were both going mad. mad. I think yes. And then we needed to sort of meet up somehow and she was trying to desperately think of some way that we yeah. could get out of the house and break out of self-enforced isolation. Yeah. I had a good excuse because it was Christmas. It was winter. Yeah. And I, yeah. I quite mm. enjoyed the fact that we could just hide. Well, it was reclaiming something, it, wasn't it? Yeah. Taking back this sense of privacy and silence. And and it was just you and your baby, babies. It was quality time that we never had. And we always had someone in the room with us. And our babies were on oxygen quite a lot yeah and that is its own battle going out because you can go out they give you oxygen to wear in a sort of backpack mm-hmm. but it's really heavy you can pick it, cook it on the um, pram or whatever but for a certain time you want to check it and nobody smiles at a baby on oxygen no if you go out with a baby on oxygen people are wary it's, it worries people <laughs> and even stuff so I remember Matt and I going for a walk and I had baby in sling and he had the oxygen cause it's quite heavy to carry both but then we had a, a tube going between his backpack and my sling oh, <laughs> so then we think your dear people like can't walk through you they can't you can't walk around lapposts <laughs> so we just had to hold hat link arms really tightly so that people can walk everything so just much, <laughs> it's just more complicated everything <laughs> 
all about luck. not luck again, but it is about it's like anything in life. It's like the people that you happen to be with at mm-hmm. that particular yeah. time. Yeah, you had a room that had mums who were there for a longer period of time. That's... I was in a the same nursery with Archie from the day we arrived to the day we left, and it was quite a sort of transitioning nursery. No one ever really stayed very long, so there wasn't really that opportunity to build that connection you might yeah. have with someone in a room who you see a bit mm. more of as well as in the milking shed mm. um, I think so. that's really important to note also because mm. a couple of people have written to me after reading Mothership and have said that they have felt bad that they didn't make the same connection that we made with other women on the ward and they've been sort of um, and it's made me feel guilty that I've sort of suggested that they have then felt that that's some flaw of theirs and I really really think it's important to emphasize that it isn't I think it's so much to do with hospital ergonomics as well because we had all been at the central hospital which had this milking shed where we which is where we all met one another I mean I know what you were saying Catherine that you kind of spoke to people more at the local hospital I met nobody at the local hospital all three of you even though you and I Catherine were not there at the same time I met you through Vicky and Kamisha I met nobody at the local hospital, and if that had been my only hospital experience, I would have met nobody. However socially incompetent I might have been, however much I might have barreled over and shook hands mm-hmm. with anybody, it just was not conducive yeah, to no, meeting people. Um, and the first hospital happened to be. And so for anyone listening who has been through or is going through this experience and you haven't connected with people, it isn't you. It is just the luck of mm. the shape of your hospital, where they put the milking room, uh, you know the milking shed in our second hospital they it breaks my heart you know the local charity had saved up a lot of money and donated to install these curtains that meant that you then were completely like you were in a changing room and then instantly you're behind a curtain and it becomes something shameful to yeah. be expressing milk and nobody wants to be the weirdo who sits there with a the curtain open although I applaud Vicky that that was what <laughs> she did that, yeah. and I would also say people that haven't really made friends and you know to you that and although it feels really lonely, you're not alone because there are loads of us that know what it feels like to be tied to that breast pump and what it feels like to go home to an empty house when you don't have a baby there. And all that, the people that you could just say to, you know, it's my due date in a week and we're still here. And that they would know, you don't need to say anything more. Yeah. You know you know how awful that is mm. or how it feels. Mm. Yeah, I mean, if there's anyone listening who's maybe at the beginning of this journey... Is there a way in which they can be more connected to the women who are around them? Is a way that they can sort of reach out? Say, just say hi. Yeah, and don't be afraid to to speak and mm. um, and some people won't want to talk. No, that's the thing. It, yeah. it might not be the first person you try and talk to. They yeah. might not be in the right headspace, but yeah. someone will. There will yeah. be someone there who's desperate, as desperate as you are, to connect and speak. And I think you might be surprised at how beneficial it is to talk to someone Mm. it might just be the smallest thing they say that you can really resonate with or it might just be the comfort of having a joke with somebody or you know it's Mm. just I think sometimes you can build things up and it's actually just you're still a person you you still had a life before this and you can these people are all we've all been thrown into this building and we're in the same situation but I think you might be surprised at what Um, you can get from talking Mm. I always think also this is so Jewish of me but I really think just food offer someone a biscuit (laughs) absolutely (laughs) offer someone a biscuit Mm. gummy sweet never get like just I mean sugar's never the wrong thing yeah maybe for us bit is really important because I did feel as well that having just had a baby I said your body is 
crying out for that baby. And the skin to skin is really important for you as well. And I felt, I felt like it helped my milk. I was like, that's skin to skin. So my oh, body was like, yeah. oh, well, there is a baby. And it was like that body knowledge. And the whole thing about this really comes back to what you were saying earlier about that patriarchal knowledge. Mm. And the whole idea of body being something modelled on the male, something discreet with, with boundaries. Whereas if you're a woman, when you're pregnant, you're not one person, but you're not really two. You're somewhere in between because mm. you are one person, but you've got another person mm-hmm. inside you. And when that baby is born, especially when they're born early... You're not really two people You're either. not really two people, yeah. and you're, you're separated, but it's like part of your body is still away from you, and you're lactating for them, and you're bleeding, and you're crying. Yeah. And you're just, I just felt like, oh, this is, I'm a leaky body, and I, and I don't have clear boundaries, and I need that. I need that bit, that bit as part of my body. I need that right now. Yeah, I think that means... Yeah. That resonates so profoundly with me. That's the thing we're all like the experience we went through. Like it, it, it. They were there, but it, it won't be the the journey for them. It no. will be our trauma and our mm-hmm. experience, yeah, yeah. And, it, and that is how it should be. You don't want them to have any memory of that experience. Yeah, but absolutely. You, it's all encompassing for you, but. They're gonna grow up and just be. It'll just be as distant to them as it is anyone else, really. Even though thank you God. tell them, yeah, thank, thank God. God. But um, yeah, we have a box. I mean, did did you start collecting little bits from hospitals? Yes. So now we've yeah. got like an NG tube, and we've got some of the oxygen wire. Mm. And sometimes I show them to Robert, and we have a little talk about it. So that's one thing that you can collect some of those things along your journey. Yeah, you might not feel like it at the time, but yeah. later it makes it's such helpful. a difference. Yeah, it's an emotional box to open every time. It, I'm just in tears. <laughs> I think it is worth saying though that sometimes, like you said, don't make the decision about what to discard while you're still emotional because yeah. there are times when you feel like you never want to see any of those objects ever, mm. ever, ever again. And if you still feel like that a few years on, you can put them in the bin then. But it might be actually that those things you think you never want to see again actually become quite important yeah. mm. um, memory cues. And they can really demonstrate how far they came. Like I remember yeah. going to hospital vis- to visit and in Central Hospital and one of the nurses was like well let me go and get you in one of the, the small nappies that mm. you know because I'd never kept obviously I didn't keep one that he used and then you know I never took <laughs> one as like a little memento yeah. but he looked at it and I, I can't believe this um, look at it look mm. how tiny it is and it's like mm. smaller than a box of playing mm. cards these nappies yes, and they were too big mm. yeah. they probably had they to be folded down, down. Yeah. yeah one legacy of prematurity is the constant coexistence of profound gratitude with a sense of profound unfairness. Gratitude that our children are alive, and we none of us, I know, take that for granted. But a simultaneous sense that most people don't start their lives as parents by walking a high wire across catastrophe. And reminding yourself to feel grateful all the time is exhausting in and of itself. But I have never, not for one moment, lost my gratitude to my friends, Catherine, Kamisha, Vicky. Thank you for saving me while the doctors saved my babies. And thank you for coming on the podcast, for talking with such eloquence and openness, and for recreating this audio milking shed for anyone out there who is feeling alone and might need to step inside with us. As Vicky said, we're here and we get it. Mothership the podcast about stories that start before the beginning.
presented by my mummy. I'm Francesca Siegel and my book, Mothership, is in bookshops now. If you want to hear even more of my voice, it's even an audiobook. Mothership, the podcast, is a vintage books production presented by me, Francesca Siegel, and produced and edited by Lena Norms. Brainstorming and direction by Vicky Spencer. Music is To Clarity by Airy. Thank you for listening, and do come over and follow me on Instagram at Francesca Siegel and Vintage Books at Vintage Books to continue the conversation. I would really love to hear from you.